Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 15, Titus and Berenice, Part 2, and some Stoics. Last time, we followed the career of Vespasian's son Titus from birth through just after his return from the war in Judea in AD 71. Today, we follow his career as consigliere and muscle for his more serene father. I mentioned that Vespasian was not everyone's cup of tea. There were snobs, of course, who found his country accent and lack of pedigree troublesome. Not that he cared. His indifference to this sort of thing was made clear when a sycophant genealogist showed him proof that he was descended of a friend of Hercules, not even the demigod himself, mind, but an ally. Vespasian just laughed. He laughed a lot, by all accounts, having a profound sense of the absurd. A practical man, above all things, which two qualities may have been significant in his troubles with the philosophers. More influential than the snobs, the self-proclaimed Stoics, men who prided themselves on high-mindedness and enduring life's slings and arrows as well as its sunshine and lollipops. Some were nostalgic for the days of a working republic, a pipe dream at best, but cost-free if one kept one's mouth shut. Their hero in the 60s was the Stoic senator Thrasia Apetus, the one man who had publicly refused to acquiesce to Nero. Nothing treasonous, really, just an insufficient enthusiasm for some of the emperor's more extravagant notions. Autocrats don't like to be questioned, and even a lone, silent voice upsets their sense of propriety. Sensitive autocrats don't do well with even slight pushback. Pushback can give people ideas. Fortunately for autocrats, there are always opportunists willing to cater to their dissatisfactions. In AD 66, one of these brought Thrasea up on charges of treason. Guilty as charged and ordered to commit suicide. The Senate did nothing to prevent this. What happened to Thrasia could easily happen to any of them, to the younger men who attended Thrasia's bloodletting suicide and who planned to protest loudly. Thrasia said, don't bother. Things change. Until then, just endure. Thrasia's son-in-law, Helvidius Priscus, a contemporary of Vespasian's, was exiled, as was customary for relatives of traitors. Years passed. Nero was gone, three emperors came and went, and when Vespasian was acclaimed emperor in AD 69, Priscus believed that old injustices might now be addressed. His particular vendetta was against Eprius Marcellus, a notorious delator, very loosely a whistleblower for the empire if he agreed with the choice of target, a snitch for money if you did not, and the man who had led the prosecution of Thrasea. Priscus had tried to get justice while Galba was emperor, but under advisement dropped the case. Too many worms in that can. But now that Vespasian had definitely beaten all challengers and would be coming home, Priscus could hope for better luck. And so, as Praetor-elect in December 69, Priscus attacked Eprius for bad conduct in the Senate. Eprius defended himself vigorously as one of those loyal servants who had striven to serve the state under bad emperors. 
Patriotism is famously the last refuge of a scoundrel, and other men can make a legitimate claim to be serving under Nero but for the empire, Vespasian, for example, in quashing rebels at empire's edge. If that argument failed to convince, Neprius could point out that no living senator could honestly claim that they had stood up to Nero, least of all Helvidius Priscus, which was true enough. It was understandable that Priscus should stand up for his dead father-in-law, but he was doing so from a place of safety. Vespasian was no Nero. Priscus was counting on sentiment, on Vespasian's friendship with Thrasia for justice to be done. Perhaps he hoped that Vespasian would wish to make up for his own culpability in the trial. He would be disappointed. Now that the Civil War was over, Vespasian, like Lincoln, was more of a malice-towards-none-charity-for-all sort of emperor, at least once his minions had cleared up Rome of the worst of the worst in his early absence. Eprius, for whatever reason, escaped punishment for past sins. Still, he was something of a problem for Vespasian, and for all his abilities was not universally loved. Vespasian's solution was to send Eprius off to be proconsul of Asia, usually a one-year posting. In this case, Eprius was to remain there for three. At least he couldn't get into any more shouting matches with Priscus. Elvidius Priscus, who may have felt betrayed, initially hopeful of a good government, became a Flavian critic. Easier to be vocally critical under Vespasian than under Nero, and we are told that Vespasian did make numerous overtures, begging the fellow to see reason to get on board with the plans Vespasian had for the empire. Priscus wasn't interested. Even his champion, the historian Tacitus, questions whether the attacks on Eprius were more pointless or more justified. Fans of Priscus like to portray him as a champion of free speech and of the Senate. Certainly, that was how he liked to portray himself. And to be fair, after the Julio-Claudians and the disaster of the three previous emperors, the imperial setup looked more than a little threadbare, even toxic. And Vespasian, for a variety of reasons, would not have been too many people's first choice. But it wasn't as if the latter days of the Republic had been all that great. There was a reason Augustus was able to arrogate near-sole power to himself. And certainly Vespasian was more in the mold of Augustus than of Nero. He was clearly dedicated to getting Rome back on track. He was thick-hided and could put up with jokes at his expense. But Briscus, stung by the failure to nail Eprius, and perhaps by shame at having failed to be as stoical as his father-in-law, decided that he would take up his father-in-law's mantle. Again, easier to do with a man as steady as Vespasian. Ancient sources note that Priscus's speeches were now notably patterned on those of Thrasia. And his fans ate it up. We have this snippet from the Stoic Epictetus, born AD 50 and living in Rome for what that's worth, as recorded by his student Arian. When Vespasian sent for Elvidius Priscus and commanded him not to go into the Senate, he replied, It is in your power not to allow me to be a member of the Senate, but so long as I am, I must go in. Well, go in then, says the emperor, but say nothing. Do not ask my opinion, and I will be silent. 
but I must ask your opinion, and I must say what I think. But if you do, I shall put you to death. When, then, did I tell you that I am immortal? You will do your part, and I will do mine. It is your part to kill, it is mine to die, but not in fear, yours to banish, mine to depart without sorrow. The conversation sounds more than a little contrived, as philosophical dialogues often do, and is offered without any context. Questions arise. What was under discussion that day? What kind of deal was Vespasian willing to cut with this meddlesome stoic? And what's this talk about killing him or exiling him, written nota bene well after the fact? The succession question, perhaps? Cassius Dio records a discussion between the two men in which a teary-eyed Vespasian says that his sons will succeed him or no one will. Hard to picture Vespasian teary-eyed, but if that was the topic under discussion, why not say so? In AD 73, fed up with the constant attacks, both public and private, Vespasian had Priscus and men of his philosophical circle exiled. Coincidentally, the following year, Eprius returned from his post in Asia. In May, AD 74, Eprius was named a second time as a Suffolk consul, ranking just below the emperor in prestige and power, about as strong a rebuke of Priscus as one could imagine, and you can't help wonder if Titus had a hand in the appointment. It's not as if there weren't other candidates who could have benefited from the office and all the opportunities afforded a former consul. If Priscus had played his cards differently, his exile might have included a cushy governorship someplace quiet and pleasant. Perhaps he was offered one and refused, though it's hard to imagine that such a gesture would not have been recorded. What then for Priscus? Death in AD 74. The order from Vespasian, says Suetonius, but others point to Titus's office, possibly on advisement of Suffolk consul Eprius, and once so ordered, countermanded by Vespasian, but too late. James Madison used Helvidius as a pseudonym in the age of revolutionary pamphleteering. Old-time senators in the U.S., when ancient history was more commonly taught than it is now, liked to style themselves as righteous politicians and stand-up men and evoke his name. Senator Byrd of West Virginia, 1917 to 2010, was probably the last of that old-time breed. It's one way to view Priscus, and the most common these days, but even the ancients had differing opinions. Cassius Dio again. Priscus was a turbulent fellow who cultivated the favor of the rabble and was forever denouncing royalty and praising democracy. Helvidius's behavior, moreover, was consistent with this opinion of him, for he banded various men together as if it were the function of philosophy to insult those in power, to stir up the multitudes, to overthrow the established order of things, and to bring about revolution. He affected to emulate Thrasius's conduct, but he fell far short of doing so. For whereas Thrasia, though living in Nero's time and displeased with him, nevertheless had neither said nor done anything that was insulting to him, save merely that he refused to share in his practices, 
Helvidius, on the other hand, bore a grudge against Vespasian and would not let him alone either in public or in private. Thus, by his conduct, he was courting death, and by his meddlesome interferences, he was destined eventually to pay the penalty. So much for Briscus. In less tragic news, AD 75, Herod Agrippa had been invited to come to Rome and be named a praetor, courtesy of Vespasian, and fades into the historical woodwork. Berenice, she was, well, nothing official, but certainly a friend of Rome and a VIP in her own right. Cassius Dio, writing later, reports that she was at the very height of her power and dwelt in the palace, cohabiting with Titus. This was no small thing, this unmarried cohabiting. When Cleopatra came to Rome, she was forced to live in Julius Caesar's Tiber River estate outside the so-called Pomerium, the sacred boundary of Rome, because of her foreign queenly status. The rule seems to have been waived for Berenice, and unlike Cleopatra, who received curious guests from the city, Berenice became something of a fixture within the city. She wasn't just eating peeled grapes and taking milk baths, assuming she was doing either. The orator and teacher of oratory, Quintilian, mentions her in passing as part of a legal dispute, the belief being that she was acting in some capacity on behalf of her fellow Jews in Rome. How did the siblings' presence go over? Mixed at best, though it's difficult to find any particular offense that she might have caused. No scandals other than her irregular living arrangements are cited. There was, however, the matter of the political future. Vespasian had insisted that Titus would inherit the princeps, and then? Presumably Domitian, his second son. But who could be certain about that odd and aloof fellow? Meanwhile, Berenice had two strapping sons of her womb, not exactly Roman or even Italian. Now pushing fifty, she was unlikely to be fertile. If Titus were to marry her, what then? The ghost of Cleopatra hung over the city, Cleopatra with her two sons by Julius Caesar, and three children by Mark Antony, none of them troublesome. Caesarian killed before he could become so. Nero was long gone, and a few men were willing to speak their minds in public. Among her vocal critics was Demetrius the Cynic, technically exiled but had returned regardless, who slipped into a crowded theater and denounced the couple, for which trespass he was flogged. Pretty bad, but it could have been worse. A fellow named Harris, assuming that a flogging was the worst one could expect, made a stronger speech with jokes. He was beheaded. Which shows that Titus felt strongly about disrespecting women, especially this woman who, Cassius again, expected to marry him and was already behaving in every respect as if she were his wife. Thus the situation as the year began. Again, just to recap, Rome's emperor had just passed the threescore and twenty allotted to men, Romans figured that one could expect no more than sixty-four and then out, so Vespasian was already on borrowed time. He had been slowing down for years, gouty on a regular basis, passing on responsibilities to his two sons, mostly Titus, and who could be expected to die at any time. 
We are now in the first half of 8079, April as good a time as any. A new character enters the stage. Aldous Caecina Alienos, a man of good family, good looks, great ambition, a veteran who had been commander of one of Galba's legion during the late Civil War. As commander, he had been accused of embezzlement, something Galba would not tolerate. Alienus quickly defected to Vitellius, who either had not heard the charge or did not care. It ceased to be important once he helped Vitellius defeat Otho in battle. A slippery man, once things were going badly for Vitellius, Alienus managed to defect to Vespasian. There is a reference to a young Alienus engaging in a mock combat with a young Titus, possibly the same fellow. One evening in 8079, Vespasian had him over to dine. Between the vintage wine and the roasted dormice or whatever other alarming to us delicacies were being gobbled or swilled down, no wonder Vespasian suffered from gout, all seemed to be going nicely. The meal over, Alienus rose and prepared to leave the dining room, but was seized by guards and immediately killed, specifically on orders of Titus. Come the next day, Titus had the Senate convene and explained to them the situation. Alienus had been plotting revolution. Hardly surprising, given his earlier history, though one might have thought his allegiance-jumping days were long over by now. But no, traitors' soldiers were gathering, and last night's quick action had to be taken. In case there was any doubt, he had here with him, picture now Titus waving a papyrus scroll about, a speech written in the traitor's own hand. Remember what I said last time about Titus and his ability to forge other men's handwriting? And, said Titus, he was not alone. His partner in treason was none other than Eprius Marcellus. Enter the accused to the floor of the Senate to face charges, the focus of astonished and hostile eyes all around. Many present remembered his days as a snitch all too well. He saw that the jig was up. And, with dash and style, if not good taste, he had the last word. From beneath the folds of his clothing he pulled a razor and slashed his own throat, his blood slowly pooling on the stone floor. Quite the go-to-hell gesture, and all very squalid, however you looked at it. Thus, wrote Cassius Dio, not even kindness can subdue those who are naturally vicious, as is shown by the plotting of these men against the one who had done them so many kindnesses. Essay question, Helvidius Priscus or Eprius Metellus? Who the most noble and who the most irritating? Support your thesis with examples. Were the threats real? Titus clearly thought so. Could two men alone really expect to pull it off, or was it just troubling nonsense? What was the mood of the Senate in the days that followed? The drumhead justice aspect of the affair was unsettling. Some doubts perhaps were floated as to who was guilty of what. Neither of the accused had said anything in their own defense, which was most unusual. Those rumors about Titus as a crack forger, were they true? Leaving all that aside, what next? Again, Vespasian was in decline and Titus was supposed to be his successor. What exactly had the Senate signed up for ten years ago when they approved the fellow? We can only speculate. 
What we do know is that shortly thereafter, Berenice left town, in the words of Suetonius, he unwilling, she unwilling, a nice phrase that gave rise to any number of romantic plays and operas in the 18th century dealing with tragic love affairs. At least those who thought her presence a bad thing got some satisfaction. Next time, Vinalia, a wine festival, and some springtime viticulture. Until then, donations always welcome, word spreading also welcome. And, as always, thank you for listening.